This is episode nine of the Next Year Now podcast. Hello, I'm Matt Wolfs, fitness and weight loss expert, and I'm also the co-host of the Weight Loss Podcast. If you want to finally become the best version of you, be it at work or in life, then you need to start listening to the Next Year Now podcast with my good friend, Tom Hefner. started seeing that I could actually impact the amount that I would uh, suffer from the difficulty based on how I was relating to the experience. Welcome to the Next Year Now podcast with Tom Hefner. Tom believes that if you really want to thrive at work and in life, then every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital. The Next Year Now podcast will not only help you identify and integrate these habits into your daily life, but also bring you key insights and lessons from some of the most successful people in their fields. And here is your host, Tom Hefner. Hello and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you thrive at work and in life. The topic of habits and practices is always front and center in our discussion but we also explore how we use these habits and practices to improve our personal development, productivity, creativity, health and well-being, business and entrepreneurship. Today, you and I have such a great opportunity to start improving our well-being and health right now. That's because we'll be talking to Corey Mascara, a frequent guest on the Dr. Oz Show and someone who's devoted his life to teaching people meditation and well-being. In our conversation, I'll be asking Corey about the difference between meditation and mindfulness and why that is important in our pursuit of well-being, the most effective habits we can cultivate today to help us start and maintain a healthy meditation practice, the science of meditation and mindfulness and how they positively affect our health and happiness, book recommendations to help us discover new solutions and ideas for thriving every day with meditation and so many other crucial insights and practical lessons. You don't want to miss this episode. But first, I'd like to give a shout out to a listener who recently gave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. The reviewer with the username Bree68 says the show has given me some really great ideas on ways to improve the eight hours a day I spend at work and to enjoy my life more overall. Bree68 Thank you so much for that comment. You are a rock star. We will continue to work hard to earn those words going forward. Corey is the founder of the Long Island Center for Mindfulness. He has served on the faculty at Columbia Teachers College and is currently an assistant instructor at the University of Pennsylvania, where he teaches mindfulness and positive psychology. In 2012, Corey spent six months in silence living as a monk in Asia. You heard that right. That's six months in silence living as a monk in Asia, practicing meditation 14, 15 hours a day. He regularly appears on the Dr. Oz show as a guest expert in the topic of mindfulness. You can learn more about Corey at coreymascara.com. Corey, I'm so excited about this conversation. I love the topic of mindfulness and I'm trying to get better at meditation. So this is right up my alley. Uh, Thank you so much for being here with us today and, and welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Tom. My pleasure. Uh, In just a few moments, we'll have an opportunity to speak with Corey about mindfulness and meditation. But first, uh, let's learn a bit more about him and his journey here because it's a pretty interesting one. Corey, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Yeah, I I grew up on Long Island, uh, Sable uh, specifically, and uh, I'm still here on Long Island, just a different town. Okay. Um, so, uh, so Long Island is near and dear to my heart. My, my childhood was, uh, I mean, 
nothing spectacular um, <laughs> in that there, there was no crazy story to it. Uh, I was always, a, you know, I, I grew up in the suburbs, so not a big city. Um, always a very passionate kid uh, and some would argue obsessive or type A around <laughs> anything that I did. I, I remember when I was five years old, I was um, hosting garage sales for all the, the young little kids on the block. Well, that sounds creepy coming out of my mouth. But yeah, I would, <laughs> I would like to say, what could I sell here? I had like a very business mind. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, I, I started selling these little toys that I could buy out of um, stores, like out of the quarter machine, and I'd sell them for a dollar. Uh, and then I got really into golf during middle school and high school, <laughs> thought I wanted to go pro. Um, and so going into college, uh, I, I sort of had this orientation toward either uh, golf or business. And I was uh, studying, I was doing both when I was in college and I was playing varsity golf and I was studying economics. And, you know, it wasn't like I was just like hardcore finance all the way, but I, I always liked the idea of growing something, thought I might want own my own business. Uh, and, and over time, through a series of events, got uh, disillusioned by that world and got really in touch with and curious about the role of well-being, what is happiness, how does one find fulfillment. And I, I took my type A personality uh, right into that and made a pretty big shift in my life that eventually took me over to Southeast Asia. I lived as a monk for a while and then where we share the commonality, studied uh, positive psychology over at the University yeah. of Pennsylvania. So, yeah, I mean, those are the, the, the two minute cliff notes. <laughs> Yeah. Was there was there a moment or an experience that kind of drove you towards, uh, you know, meditation and well-being? Um, you know, when I was 10, I remember lying on my in, in my backyard, looking up at the stars and just having this very visceral, almost out of body experience. But which seems to contradict the idea of visceral. But it was <laughs> this embodied sense of like, wow, I am just so small in relationship to the universe and everything out there. And uh, I think a lot of times that experience can can feel enlightening for people where they feel deeply connected to the world and everything else. I actually started getting depressed by it. And to me, it just made it, it created this sense of like nothing really matters. Mm. It's all kind of just a game of life. And everyone's caught up in the treadmill of thinking this is all a really serious thing. This was at 10 years old. I, and so my, my brain didn't know how to process this. I remember being really bummed out for like seven to 10 days oh, and then wow. making this conscious decision of like, I, I can't live like this. I can't, it wasn't, I'm not talking about being suicidal. I, I just, it was like, I can't keep thinking this process because it's just so depressing. And, um, and so just remember having like a conscious decision of like, even if it is for nothing, I'm just going to play it all out not think about it. And uh, just kind of go along with the ride. And um, it wasn't until uh, college where I was first introduced to meditation and mindfulness that I, I revisited that sense of like seeing the smallness of myself and mm. seeing the perhaps what some would call the, like the illusion of an individual self separate from everything else or the self-centered orientation toward life. Uh, and, it, and so it started to come back to me. 
but this time there was a, a different relationship to it because it was suggesting that that kind of recognition and understanding could lead to deep fulfillment, deep contentment, not being so obsessed with one's uh, self ideologies or, or self perceptions of how the world should work and who they are in relationship to everything else and the inner critic and whatever arises. So I think at 10 that planted a seed that didn't germinate until about a decade afterwards. Yeah, it's amazing how you can do something, you know, or have something in a moment like that, you know, years earlier, and then it finally kind of manifests itself later. Although I think for, for me, <laughs> uh, when I was thinking about that, it was more of every time I, I remember being a kid, maybe not as early as 10, but I remember being maybe 14 or 15 and, and starting to think about kind of, you know, why are we here? And, you know, like you said, that the smallness of our existence within the uh, the bigger picture. And it sometimes it was like just painful to think about that. Like, oh my God, like we're here, we're gone. Like it goes on and on. So I probably put that off a little bit farther uh, <laughs> than you did in terms of when I came back to that. But, you know, we often hear the terms of uh, mindfulness and meditation. You know, sometimes you hear them separately, sometimes together. Corey, talk if you would about what is mindfulness and its relationship with meditation. Yeah, I mean, we could, uh, it's a very common question. Meditation really it refers to a family of mental training practices uh, and, and so can be used very broadly. I mean, we see even the term meditations by uh, Marcus Aurelius and, and that could be used as like a contemplation or reflection. Uh, we could see it as like visualization exercises. Some could say that I'm meditating if I'm thinking about myself walking on a beach so it can get conflated with ideas of maybe hypnosis. And so it's the meditation is like a particular practice is the training of the mind. It's the vehicle. And then mindfulness is a particular mind state that we're, we're aiming to further cultivate and deepen. It's a capacity that we have innately, this deep awareness of what's here without being caught in the ideas or the judgments around what's here. It's just a, an understanding that awareness that it's not like you develop it in meditation, but it, it can get further refined, cultivated and more prominent in one's life. So I, I think one of the reasons the mindfulness meditation movement is becoming so popular is because mindfulness itself is incredibly practical and accessible to us in all moments. And you could be in your car and you might not be meditating, quote unquote, but you could be mindful and you might be having a conversation with your child and you might not be meditating, but you can be mindful. So the, the specific periods of the day that we might take to cultivate or practice mindfulness meditation, maybe it's five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, mm -hmm. that lays the foundation for us being able to access and have available the state of mindfulness, the, the uh, quality, the mind state uh, of mindfulness in other parts of our day. And, and with, with that said, also, just, just to add, m almost all meditation practices require some degree of mindfulness, whether you're saying a mantra, whether you're doing transcendental meditation. Uh, and so I don't want to get on my, my high horse and just say just mindfulness meditation cultivates <laughs> that awareness. There are a lot of great forms of practice, but they're, they're distinct for sure. Okay. Yeah. So I want to go, I want to uh, piggyback to something you said earlier, which is um, you spent six months meditating in silence. And actually, I think it was more than that, right? You, you spent six months in silence practicing meditation 14 hours a day as a, as a Buddhist monk. I mean, yeah. that's, 
that's freaking unbelievable, dude. Like I can't get my kids to go 30 seconds in silence. I mean, yeah. And, yeah. Why, why did you choose to pursue meditation practice in a way that is so, I'll just say that's so hardcore. And then yeah. what was that experience like? Dude, it's so hardcore. Cause I am just crazy. And I, <laughs> you can see these tendencies in my life from a very, very early age with everything I did. I was just not good at going 75% into something. I would get upset. Like I started training jujitsu when I was in college and I was going like once a week and I, and I was noticing benefits. I was like, once a week, screw this. Let me go like seven times a week and let me do twice <laughs> a day during the summers and let's just see how good we can get at this. And then when, when I was selling candy in high school, uh, like I, I was fundraising and within a week I monopolized the candy selling business. I'd go to Costco <laughs> and buy $500 worth of candy a day and then unload it for a thousand. Like it was just, you see these traces of my personality throughout my life for better or for worse. And I took that what one would say passionate or obsessive or in this case, hardcore into this thing of meditation, which many people would say is the opposite of that. Um, but <laughs> I, I used that, that trait as, um, as a vehicle to really deepen into this practice. And, and so they, you know, when I was, when I started getting into this in college, my first the access point was like through my, I had a hippie girlfriend in college. She was in a meditation. So I started doing it for that reason, mainly to try and impress her. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, the tried and true wisdom to impress girl the girlfriend. <laughs> Uh, and so then I was probably doing 15 minutes a day. Then my dad was also getting into it and, and he exposed me to what's going on in the field of mindfulness. But even at that point, I was still just meditating 15 minutes a day. And when I graduated, like I think a normal thing to do at that point would be just keep doing what you're doing, maybe expand to 20 minutes or 25 minutes. And I had this chunk of time where I could defer my college loans. And I said, like, why not just see how deep we could go into this? And I, I had this idea in my mind of um, I want to see if I can strip myself of everything at that point that was bringing me a sense of comfort or my sense of identity and see if I can expose myself to something that's more difficult than what I'm used to and then find a contentment within that that space. And I knew meditation was one way to train the mind to find that fulfillment independent of variables. And I, I figured if I also went halfway around the world, it would be very hard to access the what I was used to in terms of like my traditional forms of comfort and mm -hmm. uh, what was leading to my sense of quarry and identity. So that became the impetus. Uh, it was a natural thing for me to just say, like, what is the most intense experience I could find? That is not the way uh, I think everyone <laughs> should go about this. So if you're hearing this and being like, there's no way I could do that, that it doesn't mean that that's the right way for you to, to dive into this. For some, uh, what we're, we need to work with is like the opposite of that conditioning. That and, and like if we're very type A and maybe that's causing us a lot of mm -hmm. suffering in our lives, then maybe you go to Thich Nhat Hans Monastery in, in Plum Village, uh, you know, France, where it's a little easier and maybe you can speak <laughs> and it's not 14 hours, but like five hours or something. I mean, when you were, you know, two months in and you're hitting your 13th hour, did you ever say to yourself, like, what the hell am I doing here? I mean, this is good stuff, <laughs> but like, I mean, th we're, we're on two months, 14 hours a day. I mean, did you ever have that moment or was it just uh, yeah. a good experience overall? Yeah, two months, more like two days. Yeah, two days in. <laughs> Actually, within six days, I was I was planning to leave uh, because the intensity of it was just 
it was different in my head than the reality of it. And, and to be meditating that many hours a day created a, a tremendous amount of physical pain in my body where most of the muscles in my back went into spasm. We were eating only two meals a day at 5.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. And uh, sleeping on mattresses that, you know, so thin you could squeeze them between your fingers and feel the bone in your fingers. And it's just hot there. There's bugs, there's spiders the size of my hand. I was mm. not used to any of it. So, yeah, I, I, I was planning to leave uh, much earlier than two months. But continue to stay with it and started seeing that I could actually – impact the amount that I would uh, suffer from the difficulty based on how I was relating to the experience. Meaning uh, if my mind, if there was a moment of pain that w would arise and my mind would go into thoughts of like, this is stupid. Why are you here? You got to leave. There's no way you're going to end up, you know, be able to do six months of this. Then it would actually make the pain worse. And I would, uh, my whole system would get hijacked. And that's, those were the moments where just my whole body would tense. So like, I got to get out of here. But if I could notice that thought process, not fuel it so much, just see it as just a thought, just an emotion, and then either come back to the breath or just be with the sensations of the pain without telling a story about the sensations of the pain, then I was actually able to get through those moments. And, and that was a big insight early on that allowed me to sustain it moving forward. So that, that's a great uh, segue. I mean, if you think about your time there over the six months, 14 hours a day, what were some of the other insights uh, that you that you learned or key lessons that you kind of took away from that that experience? Yeah, you know, the biggest thing for me, Tom, was uh, I came out with a much better relationship to myself. Um, I, I call it like I became my own best friend. It's kind of hard not to when you're spending that much time alone by yourself, with yourself, <laughs> and, and just with the intensity of the experience. If I was going to just beat myself up every time something went off or every time my mind wandered or every time there was pain or every time I was confused or every time I wanted to go home, there was no way I'd be able to make it through that. So I had to develop a mind that was a bit more compassionate toward myself, a mind that when things were hard would be able to say, hey, man, like, I know it's tough. You're doing great, though. Like you're doing 14 hours of meditation a day. Go easy on yourself. It's not <laughs> meant to be uh, a walk in the park. And so that that kind of narrative where I could actually cozy up to myself and uh, it'll sound a little corny, but like even like hold my own hand or give myself a, a hug in that way, uh, metaphorically, mm -hmm. that has shifted everything moving forward. And now when things get difficult or I have a lot of time that I'm spending alone, just given my work, uh, there, I have long stretches where I'm not interacting with people or just working in my room all day. It's much easier to get through that and not be so hijacked by maybe the inner critic or the inner narrative. Uh, and so that that is like the biggest gift that's come from my experience. And one of the biggest things I try to offer and help my students cultivate is becoming their own best friend. I think that's a really, really important insight. It's something that I've struggled with, you know, for years, probably. And it wasn't until I read an article about if you're having trouble making a decision, if you've had a failure, the article basically said, hey, what would be the advice you would give your friend? And it made me step back and think and kind of examine what I was saying to myself in these moments where I might have had a failure or I had a big decision to make or whatever. And some of the things I was saying to myself were pretty mean. And yeah. I talked to uh, uh, Louisa Jewell about this as well on the, on the first uh, episode of the podcast. And she kind of said the same thing too, which was, you know, when you take a step back and actually listen to what you're saying yourself, 
I mean, if, you know, if your girlfriend said that to you, if your best friend said that to you, if your parents said that to you, you'd be pretty upset, right? About some of the things that you were saying. And that was such a mental shift for me that, and it's made, you know, I I think, you know, it's made my life better in that sense because I have a a greater compassion towards myself. So I, yeah, I'll double down and say yes and to that. I think that's really important. Yeah. And and one thing I just want to add on to that as a practical tip, because a lot of people can hear this and sometimes the tyranny of their mind is so great that they don't even know where to start with this. If you're someone that, uh, for any listener, that is maybe really struggling with a deep inner critic, you can use a visualization element where as that that thought process is arising, arising, almost imagine that it's like a small child that is saying those things like a little kids that's just like yelling at themselves, beating mm-hmm. themselves up and maybe see them sitting on a bench saying whatever the narrative is moving through your mind. Because in those moments, uh, the, the tendency as a human being, unless there is like psychopathologies, the, the tendency of the heart is going to be to like reach out to them and, and help them and say it's OK. So that's kind of like the relationship we want to start to develop to our own minds and sometimes putting a visual element on it can then help us uh, create that for ourselves. So uh, just one tip around that. Yeah, I love that tip, especially I'll say impactful for me, right? Having two kids and another one on the way. I think I can, I definitely can relate with that one pretty easy. Yeah, great. When I'm meditating consistently, one of the things I notice about myself is, is how good I feel. I'm mm. much more you know, present and aware when I'm with my kids and my wife. And I think to a certain extent that makes them feel better. And because they feel better, then I feel better. And then we have this great virtuous cycle. So mm. I definitely feel better and feel good when I'm meditating consistently. But I don't know, it, like, is that truthful? Is that truthful or not? So I'd say, Corey, that's all well and good, right? But what does science have to say about mindfulness and meditation or maybe just meditation in, in general? Specifically, what does science say about the health and well-being benefits of consistent meditation practice? Yeah, uh, you know, to be honest, we're still learning about this and there's a ton of research on mindfulness, but there's research and then there's really good research and there's research that's replicated over many years in good journals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it can be tough to actually study the impact of meditation on a person. Like, for instance, there's the mindfulness based stress reduction program, which is a, a weekly course, two and a half hours. You're with a bunch of other people. You're learning all these practices and a lot of good research that comes out of that. Uh, reduced stress, improved compassion for others, well-being, even associations with longevity of life. And so the natural conclusion would then be to say, oh, well, well the meditation's doing that. But there's <laughs> also a chance that the group dynamic is doing that. And maybe these people are for the first time connecting with other people in a way that they haven't before. So I, I just want to preface like the talk around science with that, that we're still learning a lot. But there, there was a book that came out by Richie Davidson and Dan Goleman recently called Altered Traits. And they they basically look at like what is the best neuroscience that has come out and what what can we trust and what we're not totally sure about. And and it does seem to be a correlation with more long-term practice uh, over a period of time, half hour a day, hour a day, and then just building up from there that we will notice areas of the brain such as the amygdala start to to weaken. Um, So the amygdala more responsible for the stress response. It'll be less active Mm. over periods of time. And then we're also seeing like with really experienced meditators, 
there's, you know, those moments where like you're working on a problem and it's like, what's the answer? What's the answer? What's the answer? And then you get the answer and it's like, and it's like a one second just moment of elation (laughs) or like the other example they use, you you bite into a peach and it's just like, oh, you can taste all, all the flavor, all the sensation. And it's just a moment of, of bliss. There's a, I forget, I think it's like the gamma wave in the brain, like that gets shot off and it's that moment of like, yes, elation. Mm. And they find um, that in long-term meditators, like we're talking like thousands of hours, that uh, they can actually spend most of the day in that state. So, which is really radical. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, a continuum down. uh, So less and less with less meditation, but you know, what, what's cool is like you can just continue to trust your experience. And there's what the science on paper says in the laboratories. And then there's the science of your own experience. And uh, as you continue to do this, what do you notice in your life? And I would encourage every person to just continue to evaluate it in, in that way. And if maybe you're doing it for six months and you're not noticing anything happening, then maybe you want to turn to what is what does some of the science have to say if I continue with this? Am I working with trauma right now? Maybe there's a lot of traumatic energy that's starting to be released and it doesn't feel good in the short term, but over time there's some integration that's happening. It can be hard to monitor what are the actual positive benefits of this in the short term. And so, you know, you commit to maybe a year, 10 minutes a day. It's not too much time out of your day over to to invest in something that could really have a very positive impact. Well, and maybe one of the things you can do along the way when you're doing that is to keep a journal, right, of your Mm. kind of your thoughts, your emotions uh, along the way. And that way you have an objective categorization or an objective capture of, of how you're feeling and how you're changing over time, right? You can go back to that. Totally. Yeah, I think that would be great because it's very hard to monitor uh, your reference point. And like humans are notoriously bad with memories, right? I mean, yes. <laughs> we're just we just are. Yeah. But so let's talk about practice a little bit more. Um, you know, Aristotle once said, we are what we repeatedly do. And, and I really love that quote. And I've become a huge believer in its wisdom. I mean, after all, that's kind of, you know, why I have this show. It's about, you know, the things that we practice, the habits and practice every day. So those purposeful habits that we practice every day, you know, they kind of are what we repeatedly do. Mm. If you've struggled to cultivate a consistent meditation practice, then you really want to pay attention to this next question for Corey. I promise you it's going to help you develop a consistent meditation practice, whether you're just starting out or you've tried, uh, you've tried before, but you, you know, you struggle to maintain the practice uh, like I do. Corey, you have a ton of uh, practice in health and in meditation coaching. So I want you to draw on those experiences for this question. What have been the most effective habits practices, routines to start and maintain a successful, uh, meditation practice, you know, each and every day. Mm. Okay. I, I'll, I'll give two things to this. The first of which is I, I think for many people, the biggest barrier to starting a meditation practice, and we could argue anything is just like just starting it. And so with meditation, I like to say just getting your butt on the cushion or just sitting down in the chair and, And so that as like a barrier to entry, someone thinks about, oh, I got to do 10 minutes of meditation when they first wake up. Maybe there was initial motivation around it. Then two weeks go on. It's like uh, 10 minutes. And so the mind can easily talk you out of 10 minutes. But if your commitment to yourself was just one minute of meditation each day, then it's very hard to argue yourself out of one minute, right? If, <laughs> if you say, I don't have a minute to meditate, I mean, we got to get real for a second. And, and so most people can find one minute. And what's great about 
committing to one minute, then the mind goes, all right, I'll, I'll do my one minute and then I'll go to the bathroom and then I'll cook breakfast. So you sit down, you do one minute and then often just the 60 seconds of settling in a bit then makes it much easier for the mind to go, ah, you know what, maybe I'll do two minutes. And so we do two minutes, yada, yada, yada. And then we go on and the mind goes, ah, this is kind of nice. Maybe I'll do three. And then we do three. And it's like, maybe I'll do four. And then I'll do five. And so you start arguing yourself into the meditation versus arguing yourself out of the meditation, which is very important because it's leveraging autonomy. Mm. And autonomy is hugely important because if we study self-determination theory, it's like the main thing that uh, leads to intrinsic motivation and sustainability a behavior over time. So if you're in that camp of like, I kind of want to try this out, but I just don't know where to get started and it feels too time consuming, then just start with one minute. And if you do just one minute, fine, great. And then maybe some days it's just one minute, but at least you showed up for yourself for one minute and make that a habit in your life. And if it turns into more moments, awesome. But it's much easier to go from one minute to 10 minutes than zero minutes to 10 minutes. So that's the first thing I would, I would, uh, encourage just starting with one minute. And then, um, some people like, like, um, just a bit more structure. And so tell me like what to do specifically. And I find that there's a lot of value and benefit to just learning to sit in stillness. So if somebody could commit to like every morning before you do anything else, just to take five minutes, I'm going to sit down and I am going to be completely still. I'm not going to move a finger. I'm not going to wiggle my toes. Uh, I'm not even going to shift my jaw around whatever posture I sit in. I'm just going to hang out there. Uh, and you commit to that for like five minutes a day. One, it might not sound like much, but five minutes of just pure stillness can be really hard. And what it does <laughs> is it pushes you up against all those micro moments of, oh, I have an itch right now that normally we would take care of. But it forces you to see what is it like to notice that itch, not react to that itch and find an inner grounding within myself. You can maybe make your attention be on the breath for that period of time. And then when you feel like you want to move or shift or turn because your lower back has some pain, you just notice that and see, can I stay with this, soften my mind around it, and then just return back to the breath. And that's going to set a foundation for the rest of your day when there are other moments of difficulty or uncertainty, or maybe you want to talk to that person for the first time and you're kind of scared to approach them. Just being familiar with that feeling of, oh, this is what discomfort is like, and I know I can be with it, and it doesn't kill me, that lays a strong foundation for the rest of the day and, and other things that we might have to handle. And in my opinion, lays a foundation for uh, resilience and an inner confidence that we can uh, move through and be with a lot of things that are increasingly difficult. I like how everybody can get into that. So let's say, you know, I'm I'm doing this. I'm doing this for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, and I've got a really good foundation working. What if I want to know uh, how to do more things with meditation or, or um, you know, different types of practices? Like, what would be some good resources? Whether you know you have some, or you'd point to, you know, videos, mm -hmm. books. Uh, what are some good uh, resources that you'd recommend? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to start, there's this awesome, awesome website. Um, and I'll spell it out. It's uh, G O O G L E. Um, that's a really <laughs> good one to start with. As far as being a little facetious, so Google, I mean, is just amazing right now. You Google YouTube, you just type in mindfulness resources or free mindfulness resources, and you're going to find an infinite number of of things that arise and books and uh, meditations. So if the intention is there, you can always like endlessly search. Personally, I teach on an app called Simple Habit, and this 
this is primarily designed like meditations for busy people. So the average length of them is between five to 10 minutes. Um, and all of those apps like Simple Habit, Headspace, Calm, they all have free versions that you can utilize. After this episode, I'll, I'll give you a, a, any listeners an opportunity to get a bunch of resources that, that I have, like 10 meditations, book recommendations, app recommendations, all that stuff. But like a good book to start with, I like Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn. If you want some more science, you could do Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn. If you're somewhat of a skeptic, I would say 10% Happier by Dan Harris. Uh, so there's, there's lots that are out there. Okay. Um, but the follow-up resources, there'll be plenty of stuff there uh, for people to dive in. Awesome. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Simple Habit. Uh, I, when I was looking for different apps when I was going down the meditation path, I ended up uh, I ended up with Headspace. So I don't know if you yeah. ever used that one. And it was fun. I liked it. it what I, one of the things I liked about it, and I, I haven't, to, to be honest with you, I haven't looked at the uh, the Simple Habit one, but on Headspace, they have a kids version as well where, you know, different uh, kids meditation. So I've been able to get my you know fourth grader uh, and even my, my five-year-old to to do some meditation as well. So uh, that's kind of neat. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's kind of neat. I'll throw that in there. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, what, I'm all, what else am I missing about meditation? What else do we need to know? I mean, obviously I'm kind of, you know, beginner or neophyte. So if there's something I, I missed. Mm-hmm. What would it be? Yeah. I, patience. <laughs> We're in a world of fast pace, wanting things now. Show me the impact. What are the effects? I've been doing this for two weeks. How come I'm not a millionaire yet? It's just like the new world that we're in and the maturation of the mind and developing and deepening into ourselves and the cultivation of self-awareness and and healing through various traumas and cultivating resiliency and a, a deep groundedness within us. This stuff, um, a lot of this just takes time. And I am all about expediting the process and accelerating enlightenment and insight when it's possible. But a lot of this is just like, it's like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. And we got to spend some time in the chrysalis stage, just hanging out, maybe not feeling like a caterpillar anymore, not quite feeling like a butterfly, (laughs) but it's in that maturation process that something cool is happening. And the shift that often happens in meditation is less like this firecracker moment where it just goes off flesh in a pan and more like a deep explosion that happens uh, in the depths of the sea and and something like is shifting on a deep level that displaces uh, a lot and is having an internal impact. But you might not see anything on the surface uh, quickly. So the only time that this practice maybe requires some degree of, of faith and trust is just in in seeing the process through. So if there's one thing I wish I could just like hone in on and help people with is just like it's the trust the process and it's uh, have patience, have patience with it. There's a tremendous amount of fruit that can come from this uh, if we just continue to show up day after day after day after day. And all of those moments where you where a person feels like, you know, you're going through it and then the mind goes, this is stupid. I hate this or this is so boring. Those are exactly the moments that you want to lean into, that you want to work with, where you get to ask, 
Why is this so boring right now? Why is it so boring for me to be with my breath? Where do I see this in other parts of my life? Where am I constantly chasing the next high or the next big thing? And what have maybe been some of the downsides of that? Am I on this never ending treadmill of like needing the next explosion of dopamine in order for me to feel satisfied? And maybe this is a training that on the most basic level, you can find some nourishment and fulfillment and goodness in just the basic human experience of breathing like what a gift that would be to a person to to be able to actually savor that and appreciate that and then everything else is kind of just like gravy in the car the house the the job but on the most fundamental level you can be content with the breath so the other thing would just be like anyone like in those moments of like i don't want to do this anymore like there's often something in that moment that you want to lean into and any sort of resistance is often a, an interesting door that when we walk through, there's probably going to be something very cool on the other side. So if I understand that correctly, kind of what you're saying is those moments are, are one of our key learning moments through the process. Yes. We could really learn about ourselves and uh, kind of the benefits of, of doing this practice. Yes. And they're often the most hijacking moments. And they're the <laughs> moments that lead a person to say, I don't want to do this anymore. And, and my encouragement is like when that arises, instead of uh, like listening to that voice, see if you can challenge that voice or just notice it like another phenomena coming and going. And what would it be like to stay with it anyway? That's where like some deep shifts can start to happen. So Corey, this is phenomenal uh, advice and information around you know meditation. If I'm in around Long Island area where you practice and where you founded the the Long Island Center for Mindfulness, and I wanted to get more of this, uh, like how would I do that? What would be the best way for me to practice uh, with the Long Island Center for Mindfulness? Yeah, uh, lots of ways. I run a lot of different workshops. Um, you might want to stop in for a retreat if you're coming out of state or even in the Long Island area. Uh, I do those a couple times a year in Wading River. There's one in June 2018. But I also have just an ongoing donation-based group every Tuesday night, 7 to 8.30 p.m. in Sable. So if you're in the Long Island area, you want to stop by, that will always be running 7 to 8.30. It's all on donation, and all the proceeds from that go to a scholarship fund to help people attend other retreats if finances uh, were, would be a barrier. So, um, yeah, and then just a ton of other workshops. But all that you can find on my website at limindfulness.com. Awesome. Well, we're getting ready to wrap up, but before we do, I want to dive into one of my favorite parts of the um, of the show. And this mm. is where we focus on the topic of books and reading. And if we think about habits and practices, this is kind of, a, I think, a, a true golden habit along with mindfulness and meditation. Corey, think about the books you've really loved over the years. What are the two or three books that have impacted you the most? Ooh, oh, <laughs> man, so many books. Oh, uh, one, Ishmael. Ishmael, and I even forget the author, but that book I read right after, that was the first book I read right after I came out of the monastery, just really rattled a lot of my perspectives in a very good way. So Ishmael is, is one of them. And then I would have to say also uh, Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn. That okay. was the first mindfulness book that I read. And it it just shattered a lot of my perspectives around the world and what would it mean to be to really be a, a human being and give myself permission to be a human being. So those two, I, I look back at fondly as being pretty monumental. Uh, Ishmael and Full Catastrophe Living. Cool. Uh, what books are on your, your must read list or sitting on your bookshelf the, waiting for you to read them? 
I am going to open up the Audible app right now. Well, the the one I'm looking at is the, the new self-determination theory book that came out with Ed DC and Richard Ryan. This oh, yeah, more like yeah. a textbook. I mean, that thing, I just can't wait to dive into and all the <laughs> research supporting that. Uh, Sapiens, that's another book. I can't pronounce the, the person's name, um, or I know I'm just going to butcher it. You've all know uh a more beautiful question. That's another book Warren that I've Berger. been working with, Warren Berger. Yeah, yeah. So I actually saw him. He came to town. So my background being in you know human centered design and design thinking, um, how we ask questions and how we phrase that is a really really important part of our process. And so he came to one of the colleges um, that I have taken classes at, uh, MICA, which is the Maryland um, Institute for College and Art in Baltimore. So this iconic design, and talked about uh, a lot of the stuff from his book. So I highly recommend. I'm super stoked. That that's on your uh, on your reading list. You're gonna love it. Oh yeah, yeah. I already dove into it, and it's like it's amazing. So yeah, love that. And then uh, and then just Homo Prospectus by uh, Marty Seligman. I really like his new ideas on the role of future thinking, and uh, I'm I'm working on how do we integrate that with the idea of mindfulness. Um, so yeah, those are the ones on the list. Nice. Uh, well, maybe that's a kind of a good final question. You said you're working on how to integrate that. Can you can you share more about that? I mean, what, what's coming up with that or what things you're diving into in terms of research? Yeah, sure. I mean, people, uh, I think the, the general conceptualization of mindfulness is is just that uh, it's just being the moment and being the moment often means the for people like the exclusion of the future and the past. And we never think about the future. We never think about the past. When you reflect on it, the future and the past are never actually happening. They're just ideas in the present moment. And your life is really just an unseries uh, or a series of, of unfolding present moments. So I, I, I like to take in the idea of future thinking and reflecting on your future best self or what you're trying to grow into. And the the capacity that we have as human beings to to dream up our future, like what could this look like? You can do that in a way that is mindful, in a way that is in touch with what do I what do I feel most compelled by? And instead of that just happening on automatic pilot, you can take intentional moments of reflection to do that. And even when we think of monks, right? Monks, the epitome of people that are just meditating and practicing mindfulness all day long, every day. There's got to be some sort of prospection that is causing them to do that in the first place. There's mm-hmm. a very good chance I, I make the argument 100% that they're not just meditating for the sec- sake of being good meditators. It is what they think the meditation will do for them. And whether it's enlightenment or just the, the goodness that will come out of being in the present moment, that is still some future orientation of this is what my life could look like in the future that inspires us to do the work of being in the present moment. So I, I think there's a lot of synergy there. And uh, still, uh, I'll write something about it sooner or later, but I don't think they're a, as at odds as people might might, uh, might say. Yeah, I think that's really a good point because I know some of the people, you know, when I getting into meditation really heavily, well, really heavily, but consistently, um, I did it for every day over a year using the Headspace app. And when I was sharing that with, uh, some of my friends and colleagues, that was one of the things that they would talk about, which was, well, look, I, you know, it's great to be present in the moment, but I've, I've got to think about these things in the future. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll be honest too, some of my challenges wrestling with the balance of that. And like, how do I, how do I balance the, the being in the present versus, you know, planning for the future, right? I've got kids. How do I plan for their college? How do I plan for, you know, making sure we're taking care of uh, the house and food and, and their well being and all those sorts of things. And, you know, uh, and, 
and people come to me and, and talk to me about like, well, you know, should I stay at this job? I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be in the moment and really embrace that. But at the same time, I'm not really enjoying this job and, and, and recognize that I'm kind of simplifying that argument. But I think that's a, a mm-hmm. good thing to know that, look, just because you practice uh, meditation and mindfulness doesn't mean that you're ditching prospection. You're ditching this idea of, you know, thinking about the future. Yeah. Mindfulness is not just be with it, right? Just accept it. That's, that's passive resignation. I don't know what good that's going to serve a a person that's really like living their lives outside of a monastic setting that has to make hard decisions. That's running an organization that has children that we can bring mindfulness into the reflection of like, what is the most intentional thing for me to be doing right now? What, where do like what's speaking to me on a deeper level about what I actually need or what's most important to me or, or like there's anger arising around a situation instead of just like, Oh, I just need to breathe through this and let this go. Nonsense. Sometimes anger is arising because there are some really deep systemic issues happening or you're in a relationship that you need to get out of. It's not just a moment of, let me just continue to be with this. It's a moment to drop in and say, where is this actually coming from? Reflect and then see, maybe I need to make a shift. So you can have mindful action, mindful future thinking, Instead of just being enslaved to the conditioning and the reactivities and the emotions, you can be a bit more intentional how you show up for them and then how we respond in the next moment. That's awesome. I think you have a book right there personally, but I'm I'm just (laughs) saying, look, that's all I have. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm taking away some concrete routines, habits that I can share with my friends, my colleagues, and, and, and also implement myself. Really, this has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Corey. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Tom. And if people want to get those, uh, get the follow-up resources that I had mentioned, oh, yeah. I have this number. If you want to text your email address to 631-337-8298, you'll get an automated email to your inbox. It has like 10 guided meditations. Five of them are sleep meditations, uh, my seven-page mindfulness starter kit, which has the book recommendations all broken into categories of like mindfulness for business, mindfulness for kids, mindfulness for skeptics, uh, and then apps and tips and strategies. So there's there's plenty there to get you going um, and dive deeper into this work. So uh, all you have to do is just text email address 631-337-8298, and that should be in your inbox within 30 seconds. So Awesome. And yeah. I'm going to make sure I put those on the show notes as well. Cool, man. Awesome. You can connect with Corey online through a variety of ways. His Twitter handle is at Corey Mascara, and his website is CoreyMascara.com. That is C-O-R-Y-M-U-S-C-A-R-A.com. All the links and resources Corey and I discussed, including links to the Simple Habit app, his book recommendations, and most importantly, the free meditations and resources he offers can be found at the page created for just this episode. You'll find it all at nextyearnowpodcast.com slash 009. And finally, just a reminder, if you like the show and enjoy learning from our guests each week, please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us stay relevant and findable by listeners like you. And hey, if you give it a five-star rating and leave a review, I'll be sure to mention you by name in an upcoming episode as a small way to say thanks. That's it for today. I'll see you next time.